Golden Deer Productions. Golden Deer. Oh, oh, wait, was that not it? Hey, enter, just, you forgot to enter. All right, we're good to go. Just FYI, I have my producers on the phone with us. <laughs> there you go. And, and we're pumped to have you, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. How are you? Well, it's healthy, a, and healthy and well, I hope. Well, it's a weird time, man. Yes, it is. Things yes, are crazy. Um, yeah. Um, scary uh, for an awful lot of people, right? Um, and obviously, um, big unemployment number that just came out a couple minutes ago, um, a couple hours ago. Um, what did that come in at? Uh, about 6.6 6 million. So doubled in the last week. Um, oh. And it's um, that's also before um, a number of states have issued those stay-at-home orders. So like Florida just issued theirs today. So none of that um, next week's going to hit have Florida added to it, right? So um, we were at, you know, this was now probably about two weeks ago. Um, so to put that in perspective, the entire number of unemployment claims filed throughout the month of February from Massachusetts was 17,000. There were 20,000 filed on Monday and Tuesday alone as of about two weeks ago. Um, so that was before we've seen this, the, just this dramatic spike. So Wait, can you rewind? It was 17,000 a couple weeks ago. For the entire month. For the entire month of February, there were 17,000 people across that month in Massachusetts that filed unemployment. Um, we exceeded that in two days. Um, Monday and Tuesday, two weeks ago. Um, Who's so, mostly losing their jobs right now? It's people in finance, corporate jobs, or not? Not yet. Um, restaurants. So it's, yeah. So it's um, restaurants uh, are have a big hit, um, but you know everything kind of down the line there. I've got um, so a lot of restaurants, coffee shops, whatever else, um, nonprofits that are laying people off that can't afford to meet their their payroll. Um, but you've also got um, uh, folks like. Um, landscapers, um, folks like um, it, physical therapists, massage therapists, um, a lot of sole proprietorships um, that folks that just stopped me on the street that would say, hey, you know, we would normally um, have a, a brutal time for landscape companies because they are using this kind of springish period to, to get people signed on for the summer months. But if you just got, if you lost your job or you're seeing your hours from whatever else, you're going to have people that if you can cut something, you're cutting back there. So you've got a bunch of landscapers that now are desperate for work and they're laying people off. Right. And so you get this trickle effect um, all the way through. Um, and it's now question though, is it, yeah. what about like state employed landscapers? So people who are like maintaining the upkeep of the state house or like Boston gardens, I mean, are they still employed? Are they essential? So state employees, um, for now, have a little bit more um, leeway because if you're a state employee, uh, remember the revenues for the state come in through our taxes. And so most of those those taxes, although the, the tax state has now been deferred, but the revenue that the state has uh, at the moment, the money that the state is sitting on, is from tax collections that were collected before, right? Um, the challenge, so they are at the moment, if you're a state employee, you're still getting your check. The challenge is going to be State revenues. So you're still getting your tax. Let's go. Huh? You're still you paid. Go. Let's go. Well, but tax revenues are going to fall through the floor for the next quarter and the quarter after that, which means there is going to be a massive hole in the state budget for the next year. And that's where you're going to see an enormous contraction. It's going to lag everywhere else. But, you know, if you, if you think of it, 
the state basically pulls in revenue, has that pot of revenue, then hires people to, to provide those services. Um, so it's going to lag the economy going up and it's going to lag the economy coming down, but they're still going to, states have to make their ends meet. So you're going to see this massive hole there that is going to be a, a big problem for a lot of state employees. Okay. Um, before we move on, just, just so everyone who tunes into this, can you just give a quick synopsis of who you are and what you do? Yeah. Um, my name is Joe Kennedy. I'm a congressman from the fourth district of Massachusetts, which, um, essentially means 34 cities and towns south and west of Boston from Brooklyn and, and Newton down to um, Fall River down on the uh, south coast so down by province um, down the Rhode Island border. You're um, a little more ginger than me man just a little bit. <laughs> I am a, yes I am I, I, uh, I proudly support the uh, member of ginger pride. Um, well, see, the issue is I actually like I'm kind of like a hybrid and so people will come up to me and be like dude you're not a real ginger and I'd be like, damn, I kind of just wish I was one of those guys like Congressman Kennedy. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's uh, so I spent about half my time in Washington, D.C., a little less um, trying to um, make sure the federal government's working for the people I represent. And the other part of the time is running around the district here, trying to make sure that people are um, get access to services that they need. And when there's things that need to be changed, that you hear what those changes are, and you go down into D.C. and fight for them. Um, and then I got an additional job at the moment of running for U.S. Senate. So we're busy. So when you, and I mean, because we were going to run this, because uh, I was talking to your press people like a couple of weeks back, and this was before Super Tuesday and kind of before all this craziness started. When did you realize, okay, this is going to actually be a real problem? Like, this is bad. Um, the, I think people thought it was going to be bad. And I thought it was going to be bad. Um, probably about a month or so ago, um, where as the virus started to um, creep in across the country, um, I remember I, um, I came home from Washington early um, one morning, or early to, to have a, a meeting with folks at a community health center in East Boston. Um, and East Boston is um, a largely working class community. Um, it's uh, got a large immigrant population, but a large multi-generational population. So you got grandparents with parents with kids, right, um, in, in a confined space. Um, not great public transportation um, around there. Uh, a lot of folks that rely on the bus to get, to get around. Um, and I just sat down with the leadership team at the community health center and said, hey, so if somebody gets this thing, walk me through what happens. And as they walked me through it, at every step in that chain, there was a problem. Right. If you think about it, if you're in a multi-generational household where kids, thankfully, little kids, they can still get it, but they seem to be more resilient with it. But parents can still get it and get very sick and grandparents get very, very sick. Um, but in a lower income community, if you, you if you get sick, what do you normally do? You call the doctor and you come in. Well, we actually don't want people to come in to the doctor's office because either they can spread the disease. Dude, like... Right. So they spread the disease to people that are sick. Um, which is exactly what we don't want them to do. But you then wanted to actually find a way to keep them at home. Well, we didn't have at that point the policy set up to allow people to get diagnosed from home. You also wanted to make sure that they didn't rely on, there's no parking in, in East Boston. Right? You can't park a car anywhere, um, which means people would rely on public transit. Well, you don't want them to take, take a bus. Um, you don't want them touching the, the metal handrail. The, the virus can live on metal surfaces for days, right? Um, so you don't want to touch the metal handrail. You don't want to infect people on the bus. You don't want to infect the bus driver who's going to be on the bus with a whole bunch of other people for days. Right? Um, then you get to the hospital, you get to that hospital and you kind of walk through what you would need to do to actually, if you wanted to treat somebody this way, to try to do it. And at every step of the way, 
you realize that we weren't set up for this. Not at and, all. But I think there was a sense starting out where, I mean, we're from Massachusetts and growing up, you know, like, dude, Massachusetts and Boston have the best hospitals and the best Medicare. But I think now everyone's realizing like, wow, even as advanced as we are, we were just totally not ready for this. So there's, um, I, so you're right. Um, and there's kind of no fault to you, man. I'm not blaming it on you. Don't worry. No, 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 no. You're, you're, you're hundred percent right. And there's two, I think there's two big reasons for that. Um, one is if you think of this at a very kind of high level, um, healthcare in this country has been based off of a doctor patient relationship. So you get sick, right? Whether you get strep throat or flu or you break your leg or whatever else happens, right? What happens? You call your doctor, you say, I'm not feeling well, or I think something's wrong. The doctor normally says, okay, come on in. You get an exam. He says, you're good or you're not. And they prescribe some intervention, whether that's crutches, x-ray casts or medicine. And you go home and you get better, right? But it's a doctor patient relationship where that is, and the doctor sees a bunch of patients a day, but that's what that's based off. That does not work when you have thousands of people, millions of people that are getting sick because they just can't see a doctor. That doesn't work when you need people to get, millions of people to get tested all at the same time for the same thing. And so this kind of widespread pandemic overwhelms what overwhelmed this system, period. That's one problem. The piece where this got worse is that people, if you, whether you were a, kind of an observer of foreign policy, international affairs, of global threats, or of healthcare, you knew any one of those three, you knew that this was a real systemic risk to our country. And so there were various kind of um, contingency plans or contingency ideas put in place uh, to try to mitigate that impact, right? Um, I don't think anybody could really expect it to be this bad though. And I know we like moving forward, that was one of our main questions. Also, shout out to my team. They prepared great questions, man. They did an awesome job. But I think one of our main questions was how, on a policy standpoint, let's say there's a, a coronavirus too, and that thing comes back swinging like 50 times as hard. You know what I'm saying? How, how can we prepare policy-wise so that we're a little more prepared for something as severe? So a couple things, right? Um, one, well, you couldn't ever possibly prepare for, for this. We also did know you had SARS, you had MERS, you had H1N1, you had Ebola. There were multiple global pandemics in the past decade that we knew of, and we were, um, we were better prepared to address. But you also knew that if you had those four, there was another one coming. Bill Gates talks about this all the time. That was one of his greatest fears. You knew this was going to happen. You didn't know exactly how and you didn't know when, but... <laughs> The federal government actually ran a simulation based off of a flu-like virus that came from an animal market in China that spread around the world because of air travel. And they ran a simulation about what that would mean for, for the United States. So they, they, did had, they, so they, had this, they had these statistics already. And they buried the report. What? They fired, yes, the Trump administration fired. They, they, fired, they closed down an office on global pandemics. They fired people at the National Security Council that were focused on this. They fired them. So there are things here while we can say there's stuff there that, that while this, this issue might have overwhelmed any system, there are, there are things you could have done to move against, against it far more aggressively earlier and to stand up our preparedness knowing that this was going to be a weak point, right? Like you don't sit there, if you knew that people rob banks because that's where the money is and you knew that there was a secret entrance there that would actually provide a, a, an easy access in, 
you might sit there and put a couple extra guards out front because you know that's the weak point. This administration fired the guards and basically said, hey, walk right in. I get it. So that, and that's, I see- that is a big problem here. So if, if me and you are being positive dudes right now, though, like moving forward, how can we make sure that the next one is not as terrible? So there's a bunch of things you can do. One, um, and these are some of the lessons from, from this crisis that we need to draw on. So one, you got to make sure that everybody gets access to healthcare, right? And we were able to put in um, place uh, policies to make sure that everybody in this country can get tested for free, which is critical so that you're not thinking they're saying, hey, if I get tested, it's going to cost me literally thousands of dollars if I'm not going to get tested. But it doesn't mean treatment's free. So if you're one of those folks on a ventilator for 10 days, you're going to be looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars in a bill if you don't have insurance. Hundreds. You're just bankrupting families. You got to make sure that everybody gets access to insurance in this country. One. Two, you, you got to make sure that our systems are actually able to at, do broad-based testing rapidly. And the next round of this, if it's a, whether it's this virus that comes back in the fall or a new one, it's going to take some time to stand up a test. That will take time. But you can, in fact, have the, the mechanisms put in place to do that mass production quickly. Three, you actually do things like move far more aggressively on the social distancing, right? Because we know now what happens if you don't. Four, you actually do things like have an And it's working. And it's working. Correct. It is working. Um, the, The challenge that we have there on social distancing is it lags by about two weeks. So one of the big challenges with this virus is you can contract it and not show any signs of it for roughly five days. But in those five days that you're asymptomatic, and some people never show any symptoms, but in the five days to week plus that you're, that you're asymptomatic, you can be spreading it to other people, but not know it, right? No fault of yours, you just don't know it. But if that's the case, let's say you, you do become symptomatic, you become symptomatic five days after you, you, you contracted, it then takes roughly a week for you to get so bad that you need hospitalization. And then for us to get the data and test the data against a model, well, so that means that the folks that you're seeing in the hospital today contracted the virus in Massachusetts, contracted the virus before the shelter-in-place order actually went into effect. So that's where you're saying, they're saying, well, many, some experts expect that you'll see this kind of surge take place in the next 10 days or so, because that's going to be where people before, the, the last rounds before the social distancing took effect. And we have seen data from across the country where if you do engage in this really strict social distancing, it does flatten the ability of uh, the, the, the rate of, um, uh, of infection. But even in Seattle, so the, the, the key statistic here is the rate at which one infected person infects somebody else. And it's a really tough estimate because there's a lot of folks that we, have, we don't know that are asymptomatic so haven't been tested. So, so the expectation is that one person infects far more people than the data indicates as now. But as of now, the data indicates that one person infects close to three other people. What Seattle's been able to do is to drop that, uh, uh, cut that almost in half to about one, 1. 1.4 other people. One person affects 1.4 other people, which is a huge, that's a huge change, right? You've cut that rate in half. The challenge is you're still infecting more than one other person. I know. And what you need to do is to get that down below one so that you can actually start to decrease the rate of people that are infected. Um, and that's, that's still going to take time. Um, I do think that what we'll have, we're, we're learning an awful lot of lessons on, on this now, and hopefully those lessons will, and they should inform our policies going forward so that if this does come back in the fall, which there will in all likelihood not be a vaccine for this in the fall, um, but if this does come back in the fall, we're far better prepared for it, and I think we will be.
Okay. And I, I know we don't have a ton of time, so I'm just going to try to give you as many questions as possible. And dude, I'd love to meet you in person, man. Hopefully we can Purell and then shake hands one day. That'd be <laughs> um, so I think a lot of kids my age, I'm 24, we see that, okay, Congress just passed this $2.2 trillion, and you did. Shouts out to you, man. Thanks for getting it done. This big bill. What, one, what does the bill entail in terms of how do we actually get checks for, is it $1,200, $1,500? And it's $1,200. And if you could yeah. tweak something in the bill, if you could have added something to it to make it a little more robust, what, what would you have done? So it's um, the bill provides $2.2 trillion, provides an awful lot of, uh, of assistance, but there's still more that I think needs to be done. The big pockets to this are about um, $250 billion in this direct cash transfer. Um, so if you are making less than $75,000 a year, you're going to get $1,200. Um, and there's some additional contingencies in here, but that's that's the rough number. Direct deposit, um, like right to your phone, right? To direct your deposit or check, right? Um, and that part should go out um, pretty quickly. If you paid taxes last year, we know who you are. We can get that money out. Hey, there's about three hundred taking us out to dinner, guys. There you go. There's about $350 billion in there for small businesses. And um, there's some very generous support there for small businesses, but you got to get the money out the door fast. And that's a, actually a big, a big challenge with it. There's a, over $100 billion for hospitals um, and labs and community health centers. And they need that support. There's, um, there's money there for personal protective equipment for firefighters and first responders. So there's um, an awful lot of money in here for an awful lot of things. But I do believe that one thing that we would have done, um, I would have done differently, is make that direct cash transfer um, higher because uh, 1200 bucks might get you far someplace. It's not going to get you very far in Massachusetts. Um, and if the goal on this is to really make sure that people can pay their rent and their mortgage um, and their credit card bill, you're going to need more than 1200 bucks to do it. And I got to boss. Oh, you're running out of time right now? Yeah. Okay. Hey, hey guys, do you got any questions for Congressman Kennedy? Brendan, you want to ask your question? Yeah. Uh, hi, Congressman Kennedy. My question kind of pertains to what you see some of the longer-term effects of the virus, and how do you think we kind of restructure our society? Um, do you think people will travel less? You know, work remotely, remotely more, and how do you think like globalization will be affected by this whole crisis? I think it's. Um... I think there's some big lessons here across our society. I think you're seeing the impact of one people that don't have, if you don't have widespread access to healthcare coverage, I think you're seeing the impact of a gig economy. So for um, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers and independent contractors, folks that don't have access to paid leave, um, what that means and how dependent a society is on people that don't have access to the traditional worker employee employer relationship uh, benefits. Um, you're seeing how dependent we are on people that are stocking shelves at a grocery store um, or uh, childcare workers and how hard it is to actually go to work if you, if, um, uh, if there's nobody there caring for your kids. So I think there's a whole lot of changes across our society. Um, with regards to the impact on travel, look, I think in the intermediate term, yeah, huge impact. Um, I think it's going to be, you know, a year plus from now when you're going to have a lot of folks around the world that have either had this, had the virus or had the vaccine, you're going to start seeing people get recover and be um, confident that they can go out and not get sick. But until you get to a point where you're confident you're not going to get sick, I think you do see behavior change because no one wants to roll the dice on going out to, um, uh, to dinner or get on an airplane if they think they're going to come back with a, a deadly virus. Um, 
I really appreciate it, guys. Thanks so much for having me. Sl we'll Slug, say hi. Hello. That's the other producer. Hey. hey, hopefully we can do something again moving forward. I know you're on okay. a run. You got it. Thanks, guys. Take Bye. care. Bye. Hold up.